Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files Okay, so in a recent episode, we looked at the early years of Chen Shui-bian, who was the president of the ROC from 2000 to 2008. So because of time constraints and wanting to stay on topic, we had to leave out a lot of that episode, um, including a bunch of fascinating historical information on the area we were talking about. And this area in question is about 25 kilometers north of downtown Tainan City. If uh, you recall, Chen Sui-bian was born in 1950 into a poor family in Xizhuang Village, and that's a small village near the town of Ma Dou. Eric, have you been to Chen's old family home in Xizhuang Village? No. You? Yeah, back in the spring of 2000. It was about five weeks after his historic presidential election win. Chen's old family house, one of those picturesque three-sided houses. Ah, those uh, three-sided traditional Sanhe Yuan. Yeah, my, my wife's family had one of those for a while. They are quite charming. I like them a lot. Until you uh, slam your head on one of the door frames. <laughs> These houses are really quite short. They've got low ceilings and doors. So you'll be admiring some architectural feature. So you'll be admiring some architectural feature. Blech. So you'll be no, admiring... No. Yeah. Sorry. Yep. Mm. So, like, you know, you're admiring some architectural feature. Oh, look at these cool tiles. And then, ah, your head. Yeah, but at least you have hair. Softens the blow somewhat. True, true. And uh, Chen's house was smaller than the average kind of uh, San Huyen. But sightseers weren't going into the house. They were just looking from the street. It would have been mm, pretty impossible for people to go inside. As I remember the news stories from that time, they were like, what? Tens of thousands of people visiting every single day? Yeah, something like 20,000 visitors a day, and many more, of course, on weekends. <laughs> the traffic must have been fun. Yep. The whole area was a giant traffic jam. A lot of trouble for the local people and frustrating for visitors. But my Taiwanese friend and I managed to arrive at a relatively quiet time on a weekday. The narrow village streets had been blocked off to traffic, so we parked on the outskirts and walked to the house. It was easy to find, just follow the stream of people. And besides, the streets and alleyways were lined with vendors selling Chen Shui Bian souvenirs. So, like, finding Chen's house was simply a matter of following the, the main trail of Abian dolls? Yep, uh, and there was a lot more on offer than just dolls. Uh, being Taiwan, there were lots of snacks and drinks. Actually, if you were thirsty, you could buy a bottle of Abian water, and there were Abian watches and other, sorry to be snobbish, but rather tacky merchandise. You elitist! <laughs> uh, yeah. I kid, but you know, part of Chen Suibian's appeal was being a non-elitist, you know, coming from humble beginnings. Even the fact that, you know, everybody called him Abien. So I would argue those souvenirs were kind of on brand in a way. I remember I, I was smart enough back then to think, oh, these are historic. So I bought like a hat and a, a fanny pack and some other stuff. And then I was stupid enough to lose all of them. 
But a lot of these souvenirs were just illustrative of, you know, his salt-of-the-earth, local culture kind of persona. Okay, city boy living in uh, Kaohsiung, you want local, I'll go full local for you. Something I recall quite clearly, even you know, two decades later, was that at the edge of the crowd, massed in front of Chen's old house, there was an alternative medicine practitioner. An alternative medical practitioner. So a Chinese doctor or something? More like a snake oil salesman. He was sitting on a high stool between a table full of miracle cure-all potions. Oh, yes, the miracle cure-all potions. Yes, but judging from the large billboard next to him, uh, with some uh, rather nasty pictures, it seems he was a specialist in dermatological disorders, skin diseases. This billboard was plastered with horrifying photos of various body parts. Yep, those certain body parts. Skin diseases, bottom rashes, and rashes on... Okay, okay, okay. Cut. Uh, can we move away from bottom rashes back to uh, Chen's house itself? Uh, sure, sorry. <laughs> uh, at the front of the house, there was a, a low fence separating it from the street where there were uh, the crowd, of course. And there were two life-size cardboard cutouts of the newly elected president. Uh, you could stand up on a little platform and get your picture taken. A tout was shouting, take your picture with President Chen, just $100. Now, Chen's old family house wasn't much to look at, just a, a small single-story building, smaller than the average three-sided house. But of course, that wasn't the point. I think its very typicalness itself would be the point. Yes. Something which was of special interest to the onlookers was the feng shui of the surrounding area. Okay, feng shui. Um, uh, what's another word for that, John? Geomancy? Geomancy, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. placement of things in a lucky arrangement. Yes. I also have other names for it, but we won't use those. Okay. Uh, okay. Right, so one woman, I recall, pointing at a three-storied house in front of Chen's place and telling her friends, look at that, it's impossible for him to become president. Ah, yes. That's one of the feng shui traps to avoid. Having a house blocking the flow of energy in front, but um, that leaves uh, like, I don't know, like 90% of us in Taiwan in, in trouble because there's buildings like yeah. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this uh, woman's friends, yeah, they were nodding and, and agreeing with her. So, uh, oh, right. A lot of admiration. They're saying that Chen Zuibian didn't just overcome a humble upbringing, but he also overcame bad feng shui. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, anyway, yeah, it was a, a good natured crowd and a fun visit. The large numbers of visitors to his house shows the pride that many Taiwanese people, especially from Tainan and southern Taiwan, the, the pride that they took from having one of their own in the presidential office. So in our Chen Shui-bian story, we covered the beginning of his life, and we mentioned how Abian and his parents, uh, local people, although they were poor, they still had pride in coming from Tainan the early center of Taiwanese culture and civilization. And the nearby town of Ma Do, just a few kilometers away, where Abian went to middle school, and it's also his wife's hometown, it's a town with a lot of history. And it's a history of resistance, and also an educational history as well. Ma Do was one of the important villages in Taiwan in the 1600s. It was then a large village of the indigenous Saraya people, several thousand inhabitants, I think. 
and they called it Matau. It came under Dutch control, and there was a church and elementary school built. And as you said, a history of resistance. There was a lot of fighting there, and an incident the Dutch call the Matau Massacre. Okay, let's go back a little bit. So the Dutch settle in Anping, which is in modern-day Tainan, in 1624, and gradually extend their control over the indigenous villages in the area. These are inhabited by the Saraya people who are in various states of war and shifting alignments, allegiances. Matau village was against the Dutch expansion and against Dutch alliances with rival tribes. They resist, most notably in 1629, which kicks off a large-scale Sarayan war against the Dutch. Things started like this. More than 60 Dutch soldiers went to the area, and they were on the trail of Chinese pirates. Uh, Pirates, let's say independent traders not wanting to pay taxes. The Matau River, today's Bajangxi, Bajang River, was a, a smuggling route to Matau. The soldiers failed to find the pirates, and on their way back, they were ambushed by warriors from Matau while crossing a river. Oh yeah, I remember reading about that. So according to the Dutch, while crossing a river, the guys, the, the indigenous guys from, from Matau, offered to carry the muskets of the Dutch soldiers and help them across the river. But once the soldiers were disarmed, they slaughtered them. 60 Dutch were killed, and this defeat seemed like a good time for other villages to rise up. So the Dutch were busy suppressing these revolts. Of course, they wanted to launch a punitive expedition against Matau right away, but were stretched too thin, not enough soldiers. It would be six years before they were in a position to do so. And the timing was right in late 1635, the Tainan area was hit by a smallpox epidemic. In Matau, perhaps 200 to 300 warriors died from smallpox. The Dutch, reinforced by soldiers from headquarters in Java, they sent a force of about 500 Dutchmen, and there were also some indigenous allies from the village of Shinkan. Um, modern day, where would that be? Xingzi. Xingzi okay. district. So you said a Dutch force of about 500 Dutchmen and then indigenous allies. That's a reasonably formidable force. Yes. And in these kinds of campaigns, the Dutch were very much about the display of power. They wanted to scare people. They'd use horses, large dogs, soldiers wearing armor, and they used drums and trumpets. So the Matau villagers ran away without a fight as soon as this army arrives, but not everyone made it. The Sinkandians, so people who lived in this village called Shinkan, today called Xingzi, these indigenous warriors, they are said to have taken 26 heads. So remember, these are the people who are helping the Dutch. So they took 26 heads, and this includes women and children, and the village of Matau was burned to the ground. Thankfully, the bloodshed ended pretty quickly. There was a peace treaty signed about a week later. And over the following months, we see more villages making peace with the Dutch authorities. Peace, or in other words, submitting to Dutch sovereignty. And this culminated in a grand assembly of two dozen or so village headmen and a huge ceremony. 
Okay, so a bit of violence, but this did bring in an era of peace between the Dutch and also amongst the various Soraya people that is sometimes called Pax Hollandia, a phrase copied from Pax Romana, right? Pax means peace. So basically, Holland control equals peace. But Mm -hmm. the Dutch version wouldn't last (laughs) nearly as long as the Roman one, just a quarter of a century as the Dutch left in 1662. And the Soraya people, they'd later be assimilated, uh, replaced, pushed away by Han settlers from Fujian. Yes, but that's in the future. Let's go back to Mattel after the treaty with the Dutch. The Dutch, of course, were actually the Dutch East India Company, the VOC. And as a commercial enterprise, they kept good records, you know, all their financial dealings and other things. So there's an abundance of records available, many of which are available in English. We can read correspondence between Formosa and regional headquarters in Batavia, this modern-day Jakarta on the Indonesian island of Java, and correspondence sometimes with the head office back in Amsterdam. Right. So you've given me some extracts from these letters. There's one from 1639, four years after the village of Matau was burnt down. It gives a population of 3,000. It says there's a church, and it also notes that 250 residents have been baptized, and there's a school with 140 students. So the entries for the coming years, there are some notes on progress, They write about how students are getting better at reading and writing. Adults are getting more of an education. For example, there's a note in 1643 that says the native teachers are to get a little monthly financial allowance. And it notes that there are 10 Aboriginal teachers in Matau. Here's a letter from the Formosan authorities uh, in 1652 with a couple of lines which really jumped out at me. Quote, At Mattel, we have made the large stone house into two dwellings. The clergyman lives below, the judicial officer above. But there are two separate entrances. In this way, though of course much expense had to be incurred, we have endeavored to prevent any complaints that might be raised. (laughs) Okay, so this is funny. Two foreigners in the village, but they get along so poorly that they need separate doors to enter the same dwelling. Yeah, they're in the the middle of nowhere, but they they hate each each (laughs) other so much they need their own door. But apparently not an unusual case because the letter continues, quote, if the clergymen could only put up with the judicial officers, there would be a fair prospect of matters taking a favorable turn. But there seems as little chance of making these brethren live in harmony with each other as of uniting fire and water. (laughs) Uniting fire and water. Missionaries and officials not getting along. In that same letter of 1652, there's another mention of Matau. This is in regard to the Inibs. Uh, I don't know how to say that. But anyway, local priestesses like shamanesses, shamans, you could say, these priestesses had been banished. Right. These are the local priestesses who Dutch missionary Candidius wrote about. He was the first missionary in Taiwan, right? And he Mm -hmm. uh, became quite famous. Uh, Some Moon Lake used to be named after him. So Candidius, he wrote a lot about some rather unusual ceremonies involving quite a bit of drinking and also um, quite a little clothing. 
Yeah, these priestesses enjoyed a, a higher status than the priests. During festivals, they conducted shamanistic rituals. Uh, this involves spirit possession. The rainmaking festivals sound especially bizarre, and the missionary Candidius witnessed them. Yes, and I've got his quote here. He said that after about an hour, after a long sermon and going into a trance, two priestesses, he says, would climb onto the roof of what he called their church and stand one at each corner. Again, they hold a long oration to their gods. At the end, they take off the loincloth they were wearing, revealing their private parts to the gods and tapping on them. Uh, the private parts, mm. not the gods. And order water and wash their entire bodies, standing there naked in the presence of all the people. But the majority of those standing by are women, who in the meantime have been drinking so extensively that they can hardly stand or walk. Wow, uh, John sounds like a party. Um, is Candidius reliable? I mean, let's face it, after all, missionaries like him have a motivation, right, to paint their mm -hmm. uh, competitors from another faith in a bad light. Yes, I think he's reliable. And though it appalled the Dutch, they did recognize that this was a, a serious ceremony for the local people, uh, not just a party. I think it's worth noting, though, that these priestesses were elderly women. Okay, um, not to be ageist or anything, but that rather changes the mental scene I was picturing. <clears throat> yeah, and Candidius is not the only guy who chronicled these ceremonies. A Dutch East India employee from Scotland called David Wright, he also wrote about these. Okay, we will make sure to put up some info and links about all of this on our website. Anyway, uh, back to this 1652 letter, there's a plea on behalf of this group of women, these priestesses, and uh, there's criticism of VOC policy. The letter reads, quote, You ordered us to banish them from all places where the word of God was preached, as they were considered to be a hindrance to the propagation of true religion. And in the letter, the Dutch leaders in Formosa say that they have been wronged, quote, these women were banished from the country after having received the promise and assurance that so soon as they abandoned their malpractices, they would be allowed to return, end quote. The letter goes on, the authorities saying they've disregarded head office policy and, quote, we have permitted the Ainibs to reside in those villages, end quote. These villages uh, included Matau. This is nice. I like that. And I like that they disobeyed bad orders from the head office. Yeah, and Mattel reappears in the records in 1657. There was a discussion by the Dutch about building a seminary. A seminary, so that would mean a school for priests. And I would assume they would be training local people to be priests. Mm -hmm. Yes. Headquarters in Batavia favored the seminary being built in a village closer to Fort Zelandia, but this letter from Formosa makes the case for the village of Mattel. Several main reasons are given. First point, quote, the village of Mattel is situated like Mesopotamia in the midst of rivers, end quote. Eric, why would that be good for a seminary? To be situated in between rivers? Well, yeah. um, good for agriculture, you got your, your water, for fishing, and uh, yeah, transport. No, because, quote, 
Many a would-be deserter or runaway would be deterred from his wicked purpose of escaping. <laughs> okay, so the students are going to hate this school. They're going to get homesick, and they're going to want to escape. And the rivers will stop this. So, if you don't want to become a priest, you can know what drown. <laughs> yeah, jeez. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, the letter says. If the seminary were erected in Mattel, the rapid current and great depth of the rivers, particularly during the south monsoon, would effectually prevent them from doing so, from escaping. Wow, such uh, noble motives there. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what were the other points that you mentioned for why they should build it there? The village was quiet, not having Chinese, <laughs> and it was near to the hunting field, so it would be far easier to obtain fresh deer's flesh. Lastly, and they say most importantly of all, the letter explains there were more officials who knew the local language, a point which suggests quite distinct dialects, even within a, a small area. Yes, right, yeah. And the schools are teaching in the native language. So to be exact, they teach Dutch, but the main lessons were in the Soraya language. Yes. The seminary was not built in Mattel, and I've not seen reference to it being established elsewhere in the records. And I must say, I do love these old historical records. So much fun. Oh, well, history, my only weakness. Excuse me, history is your only weakness? Um, so you don't have a, another one that begins with the letter B? B? Ah, yes, books, my dear fellow, books. Actually, another one of those old Dutch letters from Formosa which stuck out was a letter from 1650 saying, thanks for sending textbooks, but still more are required. And they say the, the missionaries, quote, have been urgently asking us to provide them with a printing press. Hmm. I guess no printing press ever came because the earliest recorded printing press in Taiwan was in the early 1880s. If I recall correctly, we did that episode on the Scottish missionary Thomas Barclay. It was called Thomas Barclay, the man who helped save a city. And in 1885, he published the Taiwan Church News, which was in Romanized Taiwanese. And this was the first newspaper printed in Taiwan, and it's still published today. Yes, and there's actually a Thomas Barclay connection to Mado. Uh, Eric, you recall back in 1895 when the Japanese military forces were heading towards the city of Tainan, that there were problems for Taiwanese Christians? Mm-hmm. There were a ton of rumors going around then that the Christians were helping the Japanese forces. And as a result, local Taiwanese Christians were sometimes persecuted by suspicious or angry neighbors. Yeah, I think the most serious incident actually occurred at Mado, where a mob gathered up and murdered 19 men and women, most of whom were Christians. Hmm. Can we end on a more positive note, perhaps? Sure. Uh, a positive spin? Okay, let's have a look at the local government site for the district. Okay, here we go. The Mado District Office website. It says... Mado is Taiwan's leading producer of Wendan, Pomelos, which gives rise to its other name, Pomelo City. Okay, um, while I was doing research for this episode, I found out I've been mispronouncing the word Pomelo. Did you just say Pomelo or Pomelo? I said Pomelo. Oh, you're right. Okay. Actually, this is really interesting because 
every year Taiwanese people ask me like, you know, oh, what is this called in English? And like, uh, what would a Westerner? And I'm like, well, we, we really don't uh, have this many other places. We don't know what this is. But interestingly, th those are the largest type of grapefruit in the world. They're like the origin of the grapefruit. It's a, you can look it up. It's pretty interesting. Okay. Yeah. Even in class, the students have said, uh, teacher, aren't they called pomelos? That's what my dictionary says. I always, you know, get away with it. Just say, well, in New Zealand, we call them pomelos. <laughs> right. Where they don't exist. Okay, yeah. yeah. All right. So anyway, pomelos, the largest citrus fruit, a bit like a grapefruit, but a thicker rind you need to fight your way through. Yaozi uh, or wendan in Chinese, right? So back to the Mado website, it says, when the spring breezes arrive, the pomelo trees will be in full blossom, laden with pristine white pomelo flowers, giving off a refreshing fragrance that permeates through the entire town. And the pomelos will be ready for harvest pomelos. early autumn. Oh, and the pomelos, pomelos, sorry, oh, it's hard to break a habit, pomelos. And the pomelos will be ready for harvest come early autumn. They're a standard food during the mid-autumn festival. They're a, a lucky fruit, but I, f I forget the backstory as, as well as how to pronounce them. Yeah, The backstory, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the only backstory I know about them is that they kind of look like a moon, so they often get served at moon festival, right? And every they year- They don't look like a moon. They're shaped <laughs> like a pear. They're shaped like a pear. I mean, you they're need, one of the least moon-shaped moon, moon -shaped fruits there, there, there You is. need more of an imagination. Have you not seen like the rocks that are dotted around Taiwan that look like frogs or turtles or bears or, you know? Come on, John. Imagination. Yeah. Okay. But mm. I will say that every year somebody gives me, I don't know, the equivalent of like five Olympic-sized swimming pools filled with pomelos. And to be honest... All I really need for Moon Festival are uh, maybe two would be good. I'm, I'm good after two. Yeah, uh, it's, it's taken me a long time to acquire a taste for this citrus fruit. And hey, you know, if listeners want a recipe for making pomelo wine, they should look at our website, formosafiles.com. <laughs> John, you're incorrigible. And he is kidding. But you will find useful images, links, and extra information at www.formosafiles.com. Thanks for listening. And John, we're going to have to circle back around to those weaknesses of yours that start with B, but we haven't got time for that right now. I'm Eric. Circle back. What are you, some sort of tech bro <laughs> from Los Angeles? I'm Eric Michael Smith. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>